0: All right, as the kids are getting going this morning, I just uh, have to call out Fumi for a minute because uh, he's not fully a pastor yet. He's still uh, mostly practicing law. But when, uh, when, when the pastor asks uh, your children to name one of the prophets and your children say Zephaniah, that means you're a pastor. Okay, so, um, all right, let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for the good, good, exceedingly great news that you sent your son, that he came, that he dwelt in our midst. Dwell in our midst this morning as we gather in your name. Refine us, Lord. Shape us. Remake us after your image. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Good morning. Well, uh, um, a few weeks ago, I quoted to you from an early church father named Justin Martyr. Do any of you guys remember that? And uh, Justin was born to Greek parents in the biblical region of Samaria. He became one of the most important apologists uh, and saints of the early church. From his name, Justin Martyr, you could probably deduce something about the circumstances of his death. But on this second Sunday of Advent, I wanted to tell you about the role of the prophets in his conversion. Like many of you, and myself included, Justin didn't grow up going to church. But he was what we might call a seeker. He was drawn by this strong magnetic pole to be a wandering student of philosophy. First among the Stoics, who he eventually rejected because they didn't really take up the heavy religious themes that he was interested in. Then among the followers of Aristotle, who seemed to only care about his tuition fees. Uh, And then finally among the Pythagoreans, who required that before he starts studying philosophy, he first must master music, and then astronomy, and then geometry, which Justin <laughs> had no patience for. In fact, if you've ever been frustrated uh, by university tuition schemes, or having to take a bunch of prerequisite courses that seem to have nothing to do with your major, Justin is your patron saint. And uh, so after abandoning these schools of philosophy, Justin found a temporary home among the Neoplatonists who emphasized the supremacy of God. They had a more spiritual message, but still Justin's search and seeking continued. One day Justin was walking beside the sea and he met a mysterious old man who told him straight up, that the Hebrew prophets are wiser than the Greek philosophers. And they're a more reliable source of truth, he said. Why? Because what the philosophers like Plato could only speculate about, utilizing human reason, the prophets knew directly by divine revelation from God himself. The prophets had a sense of assurance in the truth that they know. In fact, they testified to the oneness of God and to the nature of justice centuries before the Greek philosophers. Furthermore, the old man demonstrated to him that the prophets had foretold in many and various ways about the coming of Jesus Christ, the Logos and Savior of the world. And upon considering the words of this mysterious old man, Justin came under conviction of the Holy Spirit. And he devoted himself to studying these things for himself. He had finally found what he had been seeking for. The object of all his searching. God the creator was calling out to him to be a Christian. And to be a philosopher of revealed truth. From that day forward, interestingly, Justin began wearing the traditional garb of the philosophers of his day. This was a controversial act and it was a a sort of a creative new form of evangelism because to wear the philosophers pallium in the Roman world was essentially an open invitation for any who you would meet along the way to ask you questions about your philosophy. And in this way, Justin became an itinerant evangelist traveling around the Mediterranean and inviting anybody to ask him about his philosophy, which was really about Jesus. Today's the second Sunday of Advent, the time when the church has traditionally marked the role of the Old Testament prophets in the way that they prepared the way for the coming of the Messiah. The prophets were these enigmatic figures in ancient Israel, proclaiming the call Yahweh, the word of the Lord, to an often rebellious people. The prophets were foretellers. Proclaiming the truth of God to their generation. And sometimes they were foretellers proclaiming the truth of God yet to come. And as we read the scriptures, we often find the prophets planting seeds. Sometimes consciously, perhaps sometimes unconsciously, that point directly and unmistakably to Christ. And this is exactly what we see in our Old Testament reading today from the prophet Malachi. Will you turn there with me to Malachi 3? In fact, I'll show you a trick. Malachi is the last book of the Old Testament. So turn to the beginning of your New Testament, Matthew chapter 1. And then just turn back a page or two. All right. To Malachi chapter 3. And I want to say a brief word about this prophet's context. Malachi prophesied around the mid to late 400s BC, shortly after the return from exile and the rebuilding of the temple. Really uh, a contemporary um, uh, of Ezra and Nehemiah. And in this day, there was much injustice. As you may remember from our series on the book of, of Nehemiah. Worst of all, God seemed absent. To most people, they had rebuilt the temple and established the daily sacrifices, but there was was no account of the Lord coming and filling the temple again as he had in the days of Solomon. So the Israelites had returned, the temple had been rebuilt, but it did not appear that God himself had returned to Zion. And the people began to doubt the goodness and justice of God. We actually pick up the story in Malachi chapter 2, verse 17. The prophet begins by informing the people of Israel, you have wearied the Lord with your words. There's something about their talk, something about their vocalized perspective that's become wearisome to God. And right away, this should grab our attention because weariness is not a state of being that the scriptures usually apply to God. Isaiah 40 verse 27 declares, He does not faint or grow weary. Psalm 121 verse 4 adds, The Lord will neither slumber nor sleep. In other words, weariness is not properly a part of God's nature. He's not a mortal being that he should grow tired. Therefore, this statement was less about God's nature and more about a value judgment of the people's words. They were frustrating God. With their unrighteous perspective. Malachi continues, but you say, How have we wearied him? In other words, the people want to know, Why are we annoying God? <laughs> and here we get to the crux of the matter. And the prophet's answer is twofold by saying, Everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them, or by asking, Where is the God of justice? In other words, the people of Israel have wearied the Lord by suggesting that he delights in those who do evil as if it's good. And they've wearied the Lord by their faithless accusation that their their real life experiences of suffering somehow nullify the justice of God. To put it even more plainly, they're saying, number one, that God delights in the wicked. And number two, that God's delay in exercising justice calls his goodness into question. Do you wrap your mind around these questions that the people of God are asking? If only these questions sounded contemporary to us. And in this milieu of skepticism, Yahweh himself promises to come in the person of Jesus, just like we process the gospel into the midst of the people. Yahweh promises, I'm going to come. The Lord declares in Malachi 3.1, Behold, I send my messenger, who we know from the New Testament, to be John the Baptist. He's the Elijah figure, also spoken of in Malachi 4.5. He will prepare the way before me. Now, the critical question is, who is me? Who is it that John the Baptist is preparing the way for? And if we read carefully, we'll see that the speaker here is God himself. John the Baptist will prepare the way for Emmanuel. Emmanuel. God with us. This prophecy clarifies the point further when it says, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. I love that. Suddenly come to his temple. The rescuer will come. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So here in the Hebrew parallelism, we see it's actually referring to the same figure, the return of Yahweh to Zion. It's it's like the people thought, And they probably thought, you know, he's going to come in in like glory and fire like he did in the days of Solomon. But we know that something even more unexpected happened. The messenger of the covenant came as God in the flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. It seems significant, does it not, that God's primary response to the charge of injustice is to point to the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself is the Bible's ultimate answer to the problem of evil. Why does God, a good God, allow suffering? Well, we may not know the full answer, but one thing we do know is that the creator doesn't stand aloof from us in some far distant heaven. Does God really care about injustice? In Jesus, we see the answer is emphatically yes. On the cross, he freely offered himself as a satisfaction for all justice. In his dying, he destroyed death. And by his rising, he restored our life. In her essay, The Greatest Drama Ever Staged, 20th century author Dorothy Sayers reflected on the mystery of a God who willingly suffers in our place. She writes... For whatever reason, God chose to make man as he is, limited and suffering and subject to sorrows and death. But God had the honesty and courage to take his own medicine. Whatever game he's playing with creation, she writes, he has kept his own rules and played fair. So Jesus himself is God's ultimate answer to injustice. And it's an answer offered by no other world religion. But having made this general point, the prophet begins to address their blasphemous sentiments from Malachi 2.17 more specifically. He responds to their first accusation in verses 2 through 4, and he takes up their second in verse 5. So their first charge against God was that everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. And God's reply is, is actually interesting because he doesn't actually deny his affection for wayward people. Do you notice that? But he clarifies that his true delight is not in evil people as such, but rather in their transformation. Look at how Malachi describes the effect of Christ's presence upon men in verse 2. He says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Who can endure his advent? And who can stand when he appears? For he's like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. These are these are images of transformation. The blazing heat of the refiner's fire was used to burn away the dross and impurity from metals, so that what remained would be pure and stronger. Likewise, the fuller soap was a heavy lye soap. After applying it to dirty clothing, the clothes would then be placed on rocks and beaten with sticks until they were made clean. Um, this is an intense and 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 somewhat violent image, right, of transformation, and it underscores the painful cost of sinful people like us being made purer and cleaner through the sanctifying work of Christ. When we invite Christ into our lives, when we open up that door to Him, He turns up the heat in the house. It's just as John the Baptist would later tell the crowds I baptize you with water, but one is coming after me who's mightier than I. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Have you ever experienced this peculiar kind of pain? The refiner's fire of spiritual transformation. I wish I had a witness in here this morning. It's a kind of holy discomfort that we should be familiar with if we've taken up our cross and followed Jesus. And sometimes it can have a physical component, like the process of someone breaking free from a long-time addiction to drugs or alcohol. Sometimes it can come as an intense conviction of the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes, isn't it not more subtle than that? Like making the, the choice to no longer watch movies with explicit content. That can be painful. Or the little death you have, to, you have to die, if you're a husband, when you agree to cheerfully take out the trash when your wife asks you to, <laughs> rather than waiting till you feel like it. Right? These are real world examples, however small, of the cost of discipleship. Jesus is a meddler. <laughs> <laughs> to share with you an unheroic but I hope relatable moment of victory in my own story. I, I remember one evening in college when my best friend and I decided to go out to the movies. And uh, we looked up the show times. We were all excited to go. And all of a sudden we are about to go. And I, I was struck with a rather annoying thought which is that I should probably invite that lonely guy from my Bible study. We'll call him Steve, who lived in the next dormitory. And, and this was a painful decision. It was painful to my sinful flesh because I knew inviting Steve was the right thing to do. I, ha- I had even been praying for him. But I really thought that having Steve along would mess up the whole evening and turn a fun night into something more like a Chore. I told you this story doesn't make me look good, right? Furthermore, I think on a subconscious level, I knew that if I admitted to myself that including Steve was the right thing to do, then wouldn't that be the same thing as admitting that my time doesn't belong to myself? That Jesus is Lord even over my seemingly small decisions? I don't know if I wanted to live with the implications of that. Does that resonate with you guys? Can you relate to this kind of inner resistance we have to the lordship of Christ, even in the seemingly small matters of life? In the end, me and my friend decided to include Steve. And you know what? The three of us had a blast. It was an awesome night. Better than it would have been if we wouldn't have included him. And that night became a living example to me of the promise that Jesus made to his disciples that anyone who tries to keep his life will lose it. But anyone who's willing to lose their life for my sake will truly find it. It's true that spiritual transformation can be painful, but let us never forget that pain is not the goal. The goal of Jesus is to give you abundant life. The goal of Jesus is to give you a meaning, is to give you a purpose, is to fill you with joy everlasting in his presence. So looking back at this first accusation from Malachi 2.17, the answer is no. No, the Lord does not take delight in unjust people or in evil as if it was good, rather He calls all who are willing into a painful process of transformation, knowing that this process will lead to our flourishing. But what about the second charge from Malachi 2.17? The one that's given in the form of a snarky question, where is the God of justice? This is probably a question that many of us have been tempted to or have actually asked. Over the last two years. Where was the God of justice when Ahmad Arbery was murdered for jogging in a South Georgia neighborhood? Where was the God of justice when the Taliban took over Afghanistan and instantly began executing Christians and all other naysayers? In some of these examples, such as Ahmad Arbery, there was a measure of justice at work in the human courtroom recently. But it doesn't bring his life back. It's not enough. We know things need to be set right on a deeper level. You know, in the West, all cultures have their own biases against the gospel. In the West, we tend to prefer the message of God's grace and mercy. We we like that Jesus says to love our enemies, even though we're probably not any good at it. And the biblical message of final judgment is difficult for us to ingest. But we have to understand that much of the rest of the world, their sensibilities are exactly the opposite. This is why the Jewish people of Malachi's day viewed the judgment of God as good news. It was something they longed for. Where is the God of justice? This is a question that the Lord answers directly in Malachi 3.5. After drawing near to sanctify those who will receive it, in verses 2 through 4, here God warns, then I will draw near to you, For judgment, I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely. So yes, against black magic, against sexual immorality, against perjury, but also, he continues, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Guys, the God of justice doesn't care if the offenses sound like right-wing concerns or left-wing concerns. He judges impartially and his sword is two-sided. We see that there is a universal warning implicit in the second coming of Jesus who is coming to judge the quick and the dead. But it doesn't have to be this way for us. The adulterer can choose to turn to Jesus and to go and sin no more, to be faithful to their spouse. Even the xenophobic nationalist can become someone who welcomes the sojourner. If we embrace the refiner's fire of Christ from the first advent, we need not fear his judgment at his second advent. But guys, listen, it's either one or the other. This message from Malachi is truly repeated by Jesus himself in John 15. But he uses different imagery. Will you flip forward there with me to John 15? It's one of the more famous passages. Jesus is the vine. We're the branches. The Father is the vine dresser. He says in verse 1, I am the true vine. That's what Justin Martyr found. I am the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. And here again, we see the God of justice. But he's not only the God of justice. He's also the God of second chances. He's the God of transformation. The pruning shears that can be used to remove a branch altogether are the same that are used to make us bear even more fruit. But either way, there's going to be some cutting. The question is whether we'll be like the branches that are thrown away and burned, like we see in verse 6, or whether we'll be like those who abide in Christ, bearing much fruit, and so prove to be his disciples. Verse 8. Either way, the charge of injustice against God in Malachi 2.17 doesn't stick. And it doesn't stick in our own day. We could charge God with delighting to transform sinful people. But thank God for you and I that he does. And he isn't done with any of us. We could charge God with being more patient than we would be if we were judged. But thank God we are not. The Apostle Paul said, I don't even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't mean that I am guiltless. And ultimately, we know that this God of justice doesn't stand aloof. He responds to these charges in the most personal way imaginable, by entering our story, just as the prophets foretold. I want to end this morning by testifying to you all afresh the very truth that Justin Martyr discovered in his own day, that the prophets are wiser than the philosophers that their wisdom is older, it's more authoritative, and most importantly, that they point us to the true logos, the word made flesh, the rational principle behind all things, our Savior, Jesus Christ. How are we to respond to this Christ whom the prophets foretold? What are we to do with his claim To be the fulfiller of the prophets. The one who was sent in the fullness of time to sanctify and to judge the world. For some of you, especially if you consider yourself an honest seeker, like Justin Martyr, the next step might be to investigate Christ for yourself. Have you ever read the four gospels that tell his story? They're not very long. You could read them in a few hours. But when I read them as a young adult, just like Justin Martyr, it changed my own life forever. If that's you, if you're not yet a Christian, but you're interested in reading the Gospels and asking honest questions, let me know. We can meet for coffee. I'll read them with you if you like. Blaise Pascal once said that God gave us just enough truth so that those who seek will find and not too much so that those who don't seek won't find. The purpose of seeking isn't to go on seeking forever, but to find the truth. To find a worthy object. And I believe there's no figure in all of philosophy or literature or world religions as universally compelling as Jesus Christ. Seek him out for yourself. The story of Justin Martyr also gives a next step to those of us who have already found Christ. Or perhaps more accurately, been found by Christ. Because after investigating the scriptures for himself and becoming confident of the truth of Christ, he devoted himself to creative evangelism, putting on a philosopher's garb, making himself available to people who don't know Jesus. I got a question for you this morning, saints. Are you available to people who don't know Jesus? Are you available to friends, neighbors, co-workers, family members, perhaps even your own children who don't know Jesus? What would creative evangelism look like for you? Perhaps you could set aside one night a month to host one of these people for dinner. Not to force anything, but just to ask good questions and to share your own story with Christ. Perhaps you could host a book club that doesn't shy away from spiritual topics. Perhaps you could tutor a kid who's struggling in school or coach a sports team and get more connected with the wider Tallahassee community rather than living in your own Christian bubble. Perhaps you could ask Sarah Ma Taylor about befriending an international student or becoming a conversation partner. Perhaps you could ask John Perry or Paul Darlene about getting involved with prison ministry. Perhaps the Lord would lead you to adopt a child from another nation that has little to no Christian witness. Perhaps you could simply invite a neighbor to church around Christmas time. Friends, there's no shortage of opportunities for those who have become convinced of the truth of Christ and who, like Justin Martyr, are willing to be available to people who don't know Jesus. Are you? Are you available? It's just that if we're honest, and the, the adjustments to our lifestyle that this would entail, it might revol- involve some refiner's fire. It might involve some Fuller's soap. It might be injurious to our self-centered existence to take up our cross and follow our Savior and Master, Jesus Christ. Indeed, it will. So be it. The way of the cross is the way of abundant life. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take a few moments to meditate on the sermon.